This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. It's always a pleasure to be uh, speaking here at, uh, at Jikoji, uh, my home temple. Uh, and this is our first Sunday program of the year, uh, which feels like an even more uh, special privilege. I think many of us are naturally uh, reflective at this time of year, thinking about new possibilities, new beginnings. Of course, every day uh, is a new beginning, every moment. In every moment, we make a new choice about how to be, how to live. Will we live fully in this moment? Will we succumb to distraction and delusion? Will we focus on what matters? How will we treat everyone around us? It's this last question that I'd like to speak about today. Uh, I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, compassion. Compassion is is a pretty common topic in Buddhist circles. Whole books are written about it. His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about it all the time. If you've read anything by him at all or heard him speak, you probably know this. He's gone so far as to say that compassion, or what he sometimes calls kindness, is the true foundation of Buddhism. He said his whole religion is kindness. And they they put that uh, phrase on on bumper stickers and T-shirts. Elsewhere, he wrote, the main theme of Buddhism is altruism based on compassion and love. But what is the connection between compassion and Buddhist practice? Between compassion and what we've been doing here this morning? That's what I'd like to talk about. Buddha laid out the foundations of Buddhist practice in his very first lecture, usually called the Deer Park Sermon, given in a quiet spot in the woods, not unlike where we are here today. This first sermon was quite short, about 700 words. Shorter, I think, than this talk I'm giving. And yet it contained within it the seeds for the hundreds of lectures he gave over the decades of the rest of his life, which now fill thousands, tens of thousands of pages. But if all you knew about Buddhism was that first sermon, I think you might find the Dalai Lama's talk about compassion and kindness a little confusing. Neither of those words appears in that first lecture. Even meditation the lifeblood of our Zen school, what we've been spending this morning engaged in together, is barely mentioned. Buddha mostly just described the middle way, the Four Noble Truths, and through those, the Holy Eightfold Path. And that's about it. Everything we now call Buddhism, whether our Zen practice or the Dalai Lama's Tibetan tradition, all flow from that first simple talk about those first few ideas. 
The Eightfold Path that Buddha describes includes right mindfulness and right concentration, which we generally understand today to refer to meditation. But this is given no greater emphasis than any other element of the path, such as right speech or right conduct. All eight elements are given as a simple list, one of many, many numbered lists Buddha would describe in his lifetime. Again, if all you knew about Buddhism was this one lecture, you would probably understand that our practice was concerned with alleviating suffering through the middle way, through avoiding extremes, but perhaps not much more than that. And yet, if we step back and look at the larger context of the Deer Park Sermon, we can start to see how both meditation and compassion come into play. Most of you probably know the rough outlines of Buddha's life story. He was born to a royal family and lived his early years as a pampered prince. But as he approached adulthood, he, like many of us, began to suspect that there must be more to life than these fun games. Confronted with the reality of suffering, he escaped the palace and lived for six years as a wandering ascetic, fasting and practicing other harsh austerities. Eventually, he realized that punishing himself was not helping him any more than indulging himself had, and he rejected both these extremes. He sat still in silent meditation and at last had his great realization, his awakening, and he became the Buddha. So while Buddha doesn't mention this in his first sermon, those lessons he shares were only possible because of meditation. It was through meditation that he found his realization. Without meditation, there would be no sermon at all. But meditation alone was not actually enough because Buddha's first inclination after his great awakening was to declare himself finished. After years of searching, he had found his answer. He was free. He was content to enjoy this hard-won bliss and drift into nirvana. The ancient sutras tell us that it took literal divine intervention to convince Buddha to get up and teach. They say Brahma himself descended to earth to make the case to Buddha. And the argument that swayed Buddha in the end was a very simple one, compassion. Buddha realized that ending suffering meant more than finding his own peace. Part of his awakening was the realization that all of us are interconnected. I cannot fully overcome my own suffering unless you also overcome yours. We're all in this together. And Buddha felt that teaching was the surest way for him to help others find the same peace he had found. Teaching for Buddha was a direct expression of compassion. Early Buddhism is sometimes criticized as being too self-centered, too focused on personal awakening rather than serving others. But I think this is unfair. Without compassion, Buddhism would never have spread beyond Buddha. Buddha saw compassion and meditation as intrinsically linked. 
Meditation and mindfulness help us to see the impact that our actions have on others and the way we can act to either increase or decrease suffering, just as it did for Buddha. If you've heard me give talks before, you may have heard me talk about snails, because I think about this sometimes when I take a walk outside after it rains. Where I live after the rains, you see snails out along the sidewalk everywhere. And if you aren't paying attention, it's quite easy to step on one by mistake. It's happened to me, and it's a terrible feeling, just awful. You can feel and hear the crack of the shell under your foot. And it's really the worst because you know in that moment that you've, you've killed a living being. But if you're paying attention, if you're looking where you're going, it's actually quite hard to step on a snail because you know what's going to happen if you do. And so it just immediately feels wrong. Much of life is the same way. If we aren't paying attention, if we're sleepwalking through our day, it's easy to act in ways that cause all sorts of suffering. We hurt our friends and neighbors, our coworkers, the people we love. We might even think we're being helpful, but if we're not paying attention, we don't see that it's not working, that it's making things worse. This is, by the way, one reason why it's so easy to get into fights over text or email, because we can't see the effect our words are having on the other person. And without that natural feedback, things can easily spiral out of control. But if we can get ourselves to wake up, even just a little, the exact opposite starts to happen. We see the impact we have on others. We feel it. We experience it. And we can't help acting with compassion because we don't want to make these people suffer. Their suffering makes us suffer with them. This is what Buddha meant by his law of karma, something else that doesn't come up in this first talk, but which he later talked about quite a bit. In casual speech, we sometimes use karma to mean luck or fate, but that's not quite right. All our actions have consequences, both on ourselves and on others. This cause and effect is what Buddha called karma. Becoming aware of this cycle of cause and effect is one of the fruits of meditation, of mindfulness, of paying attention. In this sense, you can see compassion as working toward what we might call good karma, engaging in actions that have positive effects and not negative ones. But again, you can't do that if you aren't paying attention if you aren't noticing the karmic consequences of what you do. And of course, once you start paying attention, there are many ways to help others to practice compassion. As Buddha saw, suffering is not just about pain or deprivation. It's not even mostly about pain or deprivation. Our material wealth, our material wealth and comfort have increased astronomically since Buddha's time, 
and yet the problem of suffering has not ceased. The roots of suffering go much, much deeper than the physical. And Buddha himself didn't dedicate his life to feeding the poor. On the contrary, he expected the poor to feed him. He went out begging for alms every morning, even in the humblest villages, and ate only what the locals would give him. And you can see this same ritual today in Buddhist countries around the world. The monks and nuns collect food from those around them, not, generally speaking, the other way around. But Buddha didn't do this out of some sense of entitlement. He simply felt the greatest service he could offer was his own teaching. He practiced compassion by helping his fellow beings find awakening and end their own suffering. Buddha made this his life's work. We each have to find our own way to practice compassion, our own life's work. You don't have to become a meditation teacher like Buddha. You don't have to become a doctor or nurse. You don't have to travel to some war ravaged land or live among the poorest of the poor or the sickest of the sick. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those choices. And some of you may feel called to do that. And those are fine things to do. But you can help to end suffering without doing anything that looks or feels like charity. Practicing kindness to everyone you meet. Offering a smile or hug to someone who's struggling. Speaking truth to those who need to hear it. Embodying calm in the face of chaos. The most important thing is to take these opportunities when they come. When we see other people suffering, we can be tempted to turn away. It's painful. Seeing their suffering makes us suffer. But facing that suffering is part of practicing mindfulness, of paying attention. Everyone around us is a human being. All of them are suffering. All of them wish they weren't. And you can help. Everyone you meet is an opportunity to practice compassion, to put others before yourself. Once you start paying attention, you'll find plenty of opportunities to practice compassion in life. My older daughter is constantly finding lost pets and returning them to their owners, or sometimes finding them new homes. My younger daughter used to bring an extra lunch to school for a friend who seemed hungry. I've never worked as a lifeguard. I'm not nearly a strong enough swimmer. But I once fished a toddler from a swimming pool because I was in the right place at the right time and was paying attention. Sometimes that's enough. No matter what you do for a living, where you live, you have the chance to be an amateur bodhisattva if you pay attention too. Perhaps no one thought about this more than Santideva, an early Mahayana monk in India who wrote a whole book on this subject. The title of his masterwork is usually translated as a guide to the bodhisattva way of life. In it, he summarized our path this way. One should do nothing other than what is directly or indirectly of benefit to living beings. But again, 
None of that is possible if you're living your life half asleep. None of that is possible without first waking up. This is surely among Buddha's great insights. Once we commit ourselves to ending suffering, whether we start with our own suffering or start with others hardly matters. We always end up in the same place, with compassion. Once we start paying attention, once we hone our mindfulness and concentration through meditation, we realize that we can't address our own suffering without addressing the suffering of others. Compassion isn't just part of our practice. It is a necessary result of our practice. Compassion is simply the way we act in the world once we've learned to pay attention, once we notice the effect our actions have on others. It becomes as natural as avoiding those snails on the sidewalk. Compassion is the true fruit of awakening. So let's keep this in mind as we enter this new year, which no doubt will be filled with opportunities for both practice and distraction for all of us. When we come to a place like Jokoji and commit ourselves to this practice of meditation, let's do it not simply as an exercise in self-help, As the founder of this temple, my teacher, Kobanjino Odagawa Roshi, said, You go in retreat to come out. Your practice is for the benefit of others. We sit here today as a step toward ending suffering for everyone. Thank you. When I heard your talk, I was by the, you know, the idea that um, Buddha himself begged uh, for food and and a lot of the reading I've done it, it seems like in exchange he would give a talk so there was this sense of compensation around you know uh, uh, back and forth around that. And, you know, I'm struggling um, with the, you know, the world of nonprofits um, because um, the question of compensation uh, is kind of inherent in in compassion in the sense that if you're giving, if you're providing a service, you're also, there's got to be some element of self-interest because uh, we all need to eat while we're, um, you know, while we're doing, being of service. And in, in, so I just wanted your sense of how compensation enters that. And it was pretty clear when you're begging that, you know, and how, how maybe you can share your, your thoughts on that. So Buddha offered his teaching freely. So whether you gave alms or not made no difference. So in that sense, it wasn't, it wasn't compensation or a transaction as we would think about it now. 
Um, and he spoke to the poorest of the poor and, and, and to the highest royalty, uh, to everyone from kings to, to slaves. And there are stories of awakening from students at all those stations of life. Uh, when he uh, eventually codified the rules for, for monks and nuns, uh, those followers were actually forbidden to handle money at all and forbidden even to uh, keep food from one day to the next. So you literally started each day from scratch with nothing. Uh, you ate what was given. If you were given too much, you had to give it away to someone else. Uh, if you were given too little, then you might uh, go hungry that day. So in a sense, he had a pretty, uh, you could say extreme view of trying to separate uh, teaching and practice um, from anything like commerce. Um, and, and I think of his life is a little bit, it, it's almost like a, the American dream in reverse uh, because he started out extremely wealthy and ended his life literally with nothing other than his robe and, and bowl. Um, I think one of the challenges we have is how to, how to adapt that into our, our world. Um, because you're right that he was able to do that in some ways because there was an expectation that the community would support the monks and nuns, and they did. By the end of his life, there were, there were hundreds and hundreds. I think there were, at the first council after his death, there were 500 fully awakened monks, which meant there must have been many more novices and, and those studying, and as well as many, many nuns. Um, and so all those people were being supported by the community. Uh, and in some countries in Asia, as I said, that system still uh, works well. If you go to Thailand, there's thousands, tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 uh, monks all being supported in that way. Um, but I think many Buddhist communities, uh, like other nonprofits, uh, struggle to figure out how to adapt that to our culture here. Uh, how to incorporate the reality of, of money uh, and the reality that we need to do things like pay for heat and food, uh, even at our temple. So I don't know that there's an easy answer uh, to the right way to think about that. Uh, and how to mix uh, teaching and other forms of compassion uh, with commerce uh, and compensation. I think Buddha's advice would probably be to try to keep them as separate as possible. 
And so, for example, today, you know, we don't, Dracoji as a temple doesn't uh, require payment for any of you to come and, and sit here and uh, be part of this program. But then we ask for a donation afterwards. Again, the teaching is given freely to those who donate or those who don't. But we do depend on some people choosing to donate in order to keep the temple going. There are certainly other models that are more explicitly transactional. Um, but this one, at least so far, has worked for us. I hope that's helpful. Yes? Yeah, I have to say that I think the uh, definition of giving is not getting true definition. Getting can be very clearly seen and some ways not so clearly seen when one doesn't truly give, I think. And so in, the, in this, kind of in this same context, I wonder if you might expand on what it means to be, as we say many, compassionate to yourself and how this then is reflected back to true compassion to others by becoming more aware of what really what that is for you. Like, you know, what Jesus says, uh, you know, to love yourself as you would your neighbor, or vice versa. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just thought maybe you might say something. I think different elements of compassion uh, come naturally or are difficult uh, for different people. And, and you probably know people in your own life who uh, are very good at taking care of others but are not so good at taking care of themselves. And of course people who are the opposite, who seem quite good at taking care of themselves and less good at taking care of others. Um, and you're right that part of Buddha's teachings are that you really do need to do both. Uh, if you take care only of yourself, you can cause all manner of suffering. But if you take care only of others, you cause suffering as well. And there are certainly ample stories of Buddha taking time to care for himself. There's a I think there's a story where he uh, he takes a nap in the afternoon um, and one of the monks criticizes him in, in sort of one of these uh, oblique ways not directly criticizing him, but saying that other people might think it was inappropriate that the Buddha was taking a nap uh, in the middle of the day. 
Um, and the Buddha's answer was that it was a very hot day. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so why shouldn't he take a nap? Um, you know, finding that balance of caring for yourself and caring for others is one of the great challenges in life. Um, as I said at the beginning, that first sermon that Buddha gave really was, was just about the middle way, this way of avoiding extremes. And in many respects, I think that is the, the central teaching of Buddhism, that, that the true path is all about finding that balance. And we're faced with, with, those, with that challenge of finding balance in all kinds of ways. Uh, that original, the original balance he was looking for was between self-indulgence and kind of self-hatred. Um, or you could say self-neglect. Um, but it comes up in all kinds of things, including this, this question of caring for others and caring for yourself. And that balance will look different to different people. There are people that, uh, I don't know, have more, more energy, more ability uh, to be out in the world. And there are people who have more needs for uh, quiet and seclusion to focus on themselves. The only way to find that balance for yourself, again, is to pay attention to, to your body, to your mind, to, uh, to your own uh, needs, and to pay attention to the people around you. Uh, sometimes we're in a crisis. And what's required of us is just to focus on, on everybody else for a little while. Um, I mentioned that uh, story of a toddler in a swimming pool. You know, in that moment, I just needed to step into the pool and pull out this two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, in that moment, the right thing was just to be focused on that. Uh, in another moment, getting into a swimming pool fully dressed with my cell phone in my pocket would be a very bad idea. Um, but different moments just call for different, different sorts of action. But I think through some trial and error, and again through, through mindfulness and concentration, we all can find that balance, which will shift over time. And, uh, 
and take care both of ourselves and those around us. What is compassion at its very core? Is it um, is it a feeling or a realization or an action or a mindset? And you said in the story that when Buddha achieved enlightenment, um, the story goes that he was in he went he was inclined to enjoy the bliss and go into nirvana, but it was an argument that changed his mind, and then he realized that other people's suffering was his suffering as well. So if you could elaborate on that part. So it's a two-part question. What is in its very core what you think compassion is? Or what have you realized or felt it is? And then what was the situation when in that in that story? Thank you. So I, I think about compassion as being fundamentally uh, what we call the bodhisattva vow, the, the vow to uh, save all beings from suffering. Uh, and it's all beings, and so it includes yourself as a being, but includes all the beings around you. Uh, that the practice of, of trying to to alleviate suffering for all beings is the is the heart of compassion. The story of Buddha deciding to teach uh, you know is a complicated one. Part of the part of his disinclination to teach at first, uh, at least as it's given in the sutras, um, was in some sense actually self-doubt. He just wasn't sure that anybody would understand it. Um, and and he didn't like the idea of, of basically being a failure. And so his decision to teach, I think, was a two-part uh, decision. On the one hand, this realization that the suffering of others uh, was also his suffering. But on the other hand, that it was really possible to communicate his teaching to others. Um, and that was part of the argument it said that Brahma made to him that perhaps not everyone would understand his teachings. Perhaps even most people wouldn't understand his teachings, but some people would understand his teachings. Um, and so he really could alleviate the suffering of at least some people if he committed himself to teach. And again, according to the sutras, that was true. And in fact, the people who heard that first Deer Park sermon, it said, were immediately awakened. Um, and there are stories of many hundreds of others 
finding awakening during his lifetime. And then those teachings have been passed down all the way to us. Um, and so I think there's probably an example there for all of us that there's really two pieces to this bodhisattva vow. On the one hand, uh, committing to alleviating the suffering of others. But on the other hand, believing in ourself, that we really can do that if we, if we dedicate ourselves to it. Because without the second, there's sort of no point. Um, and so both those things were required before Buddha uh, agreed to become a teacher. When we get out of discursive thinking, in a way, when we get out of transactional thinking as well, and it occurs to me that the monks... Oh, sorry. It occurs to me that the monks with the Buddha bowls are making a gift to the poor villagers who otherwise might feel that they have nothing to offer. And by being able to give to another human being, they can, in a sense, fulfill a Buddha vow themselves. Yes, I, I think that's very well put. Um, I think uh, if you go to countries like Thailand where this remains the, the tradition, um, the people giving the alms feel quite fortunate to be able to give alms um, and are, do it quite happily. Um, and I think we've all probably had that feeling, uh, maybe doing a favor for someone, even giving a gift to someone. Um, sometimes it's more fun for you than for the recipient because you get this great feeling of having helped someone. Um, uh, Hopefully some of you had that experience over the holiday of uh, the joy of giving to people. Um, and so I think in general, you know, compassion doesn't have to and probably usually doesn't feel like a chore. It, it's a gift uh, to ourselves. Um, Again, when you're paying attention to the effect your actions have on others, you can't help but feel good when you do something that, that helps another person and when you alleviate their suffering, even in some small way. Uh, could you elaborate more on the uh, middle path when it comes to compassion? Uh, you had just answered a question earlier on uh, balancing the uh, needs of yourself with uh, the attention that you can pay to other people's needs as well. Um, could you elaborate more on possibly accidentally being over-compassionate um, and what Buddha would think about that? Well, it's, 
quite common to hear stories, for example, of uh, people in what we might think of as traditionally compassionate occupations, whether that's uh, doctors, nurses, therapists, um, uh, people working in other sort of nonprofit fields, getting burned out, um, and then having to stop. Uh, And so, in a sense, having to cut short that um, career of compassion. Uh, I have a, a good friend whose parents, uh, you know, more or less over the course of their lives, gave away all their money. Um, and now they don't really have enough to live. Um, which then is not only affecting them, but uh, is affecting this friend of mine who now has some obligation to try to try to help them through their uh, their old age. Um, but it's very hard to know from the outside whether someone has found that middle way, uh, because it is different for everyone. So you only really know it for yourself. And you only really know it for yourself if you take the time to, to pay, pay attention and to kind of inquire of yourself where you are on that path. Um, I think often we can tell when we're experiencing something like burnout, something something that gives us the signal that we're, we've drifted to the extreme, that we're doing something that's not sustainable for ourselves. Um, but I think there's no, there's no simple formula. Um, just as there's no simple formula for any of the other kind of balancing that we have to do in our life how much time to spend at work, away from work, how much time to spend uh, at a temple like Jokoji or out in the world. Um, of course, there are people who spend their whole lives in a temple, and to them, that's, that's the right path. To others, probably most of us, that feels very extreme. That doesn't feel like a, a middle way. And similarly, there are people that um, that seem to spend their whole life in the service of others, um, and others for whom that would not be sustainable. They need uh, they need to take breaks. Um, so I think you have to find that that middle path for yourself. Uh, and the only way to do that is through this sort of continual questioning and, and sort of course correction uh, as you go. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge 
and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.